Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy weekly podcast where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind the energy news. I'm the CEO, Peter White, and we have with us uh, the Rethink Energy editor, Harry Morgan. Hello. And the solar analyst, Andreas Wontanar. Hello. And, and a new voice this week, our new analyst, Bogdan Avramuta. Hello, hello. Thank you very much for uh, the introduction. I'm happy to be here. This is the, the first time I'm on a podcast, by the way, so it uh, should be interesting. <laughs> on the show today, we reveal that uh, European solar projects are being delayed due to high uh, solar module prices. Um, the market seems to be waiting for modules that use less polysilicon. We'll also talk about um, something called cyclopropane rings, which the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California tells us could create the most dense fuel ever made. And it also asks, can these be made from bacteria? We'll find out. Finally, we'll ask why Europe doesn't seem to want to put a target or specific funding into energy storage and who this upset this week. So, Andres, um, we're going to start with you. Um, we want to hear exactly what's going on with uh, solar module purchases. Well, this is a few related small stories that all come back to the uh, polysilicon price. So the polysilicon price is once again at a 10, 12-year record this month. It jumped up especially high in July. Uh, you can see that in a, a nice little graph in the article. One thing that that's causing is that, according to PV Infolink's price trend reporting this week, there have been module purchases delayed that were destined for utility-scale projects because the, they're not sure if it's worth buying them at the current high price. The other story, part of the story is that wafers are getting thinner. Uh, obviously, the wafer consists of polysilicon. So if, you, if they're thinner, then you're paying less because you're using less polysilicon. I hadn't noticed, but actually going back to May, you're now starting to see quite mainstream offers of 150 micrometer down from 160 micrometer. Well, that's probably about 1% or 2% just from that change off the total cost of utility scale project. And then there's heterojunction and Topcon, the more advanced uh, new technologies. They can go even below that to uh, maybe 100 micrometers in theory for heterojunction and Risen Energy had that 120 micrometer offering uh, a couple of months back. Uh, that's just little numbers. I won't, I won't go into the numbers too much. I'll just say if polysilicon is $40 per kilogram, then it's 40% of total module cost. Module cost is 40% of utility scale project cost. If you go from 160 micrometers to 120, you've gone from 16% of total project cost to 12% at the utility scale. Uh, so you've lost 4% that way of the total investment cost, which is actually very good. That's just utility scale. The reason we don't see the same kind of reticence around residential installs is because the module cost is, um, is diluted by the extra costs of a residential or, or a rooftop installation. And so right now, with the very high power prices, that's more than that more than offsets the the module cost issue. Yeah, I mean, I think in Europe, you know, we're definitely going to see that. Harry, you've got some idea of how some work you've been doing recently on how um, prices of um, electricity, in particular, have gone up in Europe, and how energy prices generally, and how that effectively means solar is is in an even better position. So, it seems odd that people are delaying projects. It, do, it does seem really odd. Um, I, I just think, yeah, if we're looking at um, people trying to use less and less electricity as well, it just means that, um, and we, we've talked about these sky-high prices, meaning that people sort of defect from the grid and start producing their own energy. Then now sp spreading those spreading those distributed resources out, then you've suddenly got less and less people using utility power, and that, that means utilities are going to have to spread their assets across fewer customers. Um, so seeing prices increase. So I, I mean, we, we've, we've talked about this in the past, that it's decades in decades you don't really expect to see 
energy prices fall. So it's not something that we expect to see erode solar's advantage at all. I think solar, yeah, solar is something that we'll need to see on distributed and utility scale. And it, it makes absolutely no sense, really, uh, given the fact that that's one of the only things that can drive down prices to actually be delaying these projects. A related part of the article is um, this, this uh, research by Level 10 Energy that shows a 50% year-on-year increase for uh, for renewable PPAs in general. And it even, it even showed um, $90 per megawatt hour for solar PPAs in Poland. And you know, it doesn't matter if solar modules are a lot more expensive if everything is, especially electricity. Every individual home is looking at a much higher bill so there's, there's more chance of them buying into a solar panel. They're not going to worry about comparisons with last year's price, as you say, because it's a small percentage. So um, the, the rooftop market will accelerate. And we've seen this in your forecast for, um, for uh, Global Solar, where you say that immediately the rooftop market is accelerating at the expense of the utility market. And that's exactly what, we're, what, what you're saying is happening. Um, and then the utility market will say, OK, these are all the new prices. We've realigned our financing model. We, we do understand um, that, that we can go ahead and, and work on larger projects will resume. Well, I don't think they have to get used to the polysilicon price because it, the, the cost of producing it hasn't changed. It's just that the, the 10 polysilicon companies are charging as much as they can get away with um, while they know it's in shortage. Um, and there's, but there's another 10 companies that are joining polysilicon for the first time. There's vast amounts of factories coming online this year, next year. Yeah, lucky there's not a cartel. Well, I don't, I don't think it is a cartel, because a cartel is when you restrict uh, supply. And really, it's just that the demand has increased and it takes a while to build new factories. It's, it must be, must be lovely to be innocent. <laughs> I mean, you're right, you're right. You, you, we, saw, we saw the fires, we saw the floods, we saw the problems. Um, again, it was like, like any other of these uh, crises. Polysilicon... Uh, um, crisis uh, uh, emerged around a couple of fires um, and some plants being out of order. But it was going to happen anyway. It's just that there's always a trigger point in the same way that, that natural gas was going to be a choke point for the whole energy system at some point. But, but you know, the Ukraine war was the trigger uh, that made everyone notice it because it made it happen overnight. Um, uh, and so you're right, they, they, those, those increases in price were not... Um, Okay, we, 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 we will monitor this situation if you want to know what's happening with uh, solar module prices, the price of polysilicon. Um, keep reading Rethink Energy and uh, Andres' coverage uh, at www.rethinkresearch.biz. Click Energy, click Weekly Analysis. Um, next story we're going to look at, um, Harry. I mean, I just how real did you think this is? The... Um, the um, the uh, uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab uh, using bacteria to make the most powerful, um, albeit um, still carbon fuel uh, known to man. So yeah, I have, I have no doubt, no doubt that it's real. Um, but the idea of it being commercialised or used in the timelines we need to reach net zero emissions, I, I, I'd very much put a question mark on. Um, essentially, the story this week was a an article I read in the uh, journal Jewel from the academics at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California. The 
essentially what they've done is they've combined sort of genetic engineering and synthetic biology to produce what's known as uh, CP rings. So uh, that's cyclopropane rings and using soil bacteria to produce those. And so in theory, by doing that, you could create a net zero or even a carbon negative fuel. How? Um, How does that work? So the way it works is by interrupting the production of something called jorsamicin, um, which is normally produced by the, a um, a soil bacteria. I can try and pronounce its name. I think it's Stepomyces rosover tisilatus. Um, but then, so it it will inter, inter, interrupt the production of this um, jorsamicin uh, uh, at a step where nitrogen would normally be added, um, and instead it produces this fatty acid, which we can convert it to a fuel. Uh, in sort of an ester format. And this fuel is essentially a, a spine of carbon molecules surrounded by these CP rings. Um, the great thing about CP rings is how energy, energy dense they are. So they use three carbon uh, molecules, not four, uh, which means that the angles between the carbon atoms are 60 degrees rather than 109.5 that you'd normally see in a tetrahedral uh, carbon structure. These angles that are more acute, which means that they're under more strain and that increase in strain means that they hold more energy. So in a solution of CP rings, you can expect energy densities of 40 to 50 megajoules per litre rather than the 35 megajoules per litre we see in even sort of the most dense fuels that are used in, in space exploration uh, and in the by the aviation industry. It's, it's a lot higher, uh, yeah, 40 to 50 megajoules than what we expect to see from liquid ammonia, uh, which is around 11.5 megajoules, which is, is the highest we're expecting to see from these clean fuels. Although that's in a, you've got to bear in mind, that's in a, vo a uh, volume perspective, not in a weight perspective. So if you're moving towards things like liquid hydrogen, the density per kilogram is, is How would it affect weight, do you think? Um, in terms of weight, it's, um, it's an improvement on jet fuel. I mean, if you're looking at the, um, in practice, it was used in the 1960s by Russian scientists, and it showed a 3% increase in the uh, thrust per unit weight. Uh, against kerosene, so that's obviously a really, really increase there, but that's not necessarily going so to increase over So this is not, not like a hydrogen. new discovery. It, it, make, it, making it using bacteria is the new yeah, discovery. Yeah, so, it, it, I mean, in the past, it obviously has been made through using fossil fuels, um, but at the moment, uh, this, that, this innovation is focused around using bacteria to produce it. Uh, obviously, at the moment, very, very small scale. Um, they produce, yeah, 10 milligrams of the actual fuel, uh, per sort of litre of the bacterial solution. So um, they'll need, a, I think, around 100%, 100 fold increase in that, sorry, to um, have a sort of commercial process and they'll have to do that at a really low cost. The idea of implementing it's quite difficult as well. Um, the aviation industry doesn't like adopting things early if they're going to be more expensive. It's not like um, where these processes have been used in the past in uh, the healthcare industry. Um, so the route to commercialisation is tricky, um, and there we, while we could expect to see some blends into other hydrocarbon fuels, it's, um, again, going to add cost there. Um, we talk about it in the, in the article. But if we built a cycle that, that works like this, surely the speed of the bacterial growth and the amount of CO2 they take out of the air would be almost overnight, and therefore... Um, Growing a batch of this to fly, let's say your uh, NORAD defence air aircraft um, would be sucking CO two out of the air, putting putting most of it back again, but sucking out the air quickly. Yes, yeah, I mean, and that, and that's that's the overarching concept. I mean, not it's like growing a tree. No, and it and it and it could if you can scale this up and you can genetically engineer it um, 
sort of further to increase its reproduction rates. Things like that, obviously, are a really good way of sort of scaling this. Um, and I, I think it definitely does have potential to have a large impact on the aviation industry. As we've said, this is obviously an academic stage at the moment, so pushing it towards commercialization, we wouldn't expect to see within the next 10 years, really. Um, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a seven to eight or, or nine years before they can get that, that hundredfold increase, um, if indeed it can be. Reach, so can this uh, can this be placed under the uh, SAF umbrella, so sustainable aviation fuel label? Yes, definitely, um, and I think that's where we'll expect to see it. So I think um, as, and as a blend, you mean? Yes, yeah. I mean, as a blend, or as, as just a sustainable aviation fuel, even if it's used on its own. Um, I think the way that it will will see, and um, the way we see the aviation market moving really towards um, decarbonisation is a combination between hydrogen powered aircraft and aircraft using. Um, sustainable aviation fuels that have been produced using waste. Um, so the way I see this going is blending into that sort of waste-based fuels, basically. So using this bio-produced fuel in sort of higher, higher and higher volumes, because obviously this is, at this point, if we're looking at net zero aircraft, this is a um, this is to in, in, increase performance and maybe even reduce cost at that point. So uh, it obviously depends on the amount of waste feedstock that's available to the industry, but it, it's definitely an option that can be uh, looked at as a scalable solution moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that if you're Boeing or um, one of the large aircraft companies, um, you, you you continue to uh, look at making the type of engines that you make now, or using the type of engines that you make now in your in your uh, aircraft designs, because SAF can give you a good reduction in CO2, uh, enough to be going along with, and uh, and. And you're going to come into this area of, well, when do I design a hydrogen plane? Now, I think we're actually, um, Bogdan, you were writing about uh, the Farnborough Air Show. And wasn't there evidence that uh, Boeing is starting to uh, investigate hydrogen? Yes, well, uh, Boeing kind of go back and forth on uh, what they're uh, declaring. A year ago, they said they don't really believe in hydrogen being a short-term solution. But it turns out that they've been... Uh, conducting tests on a cryo tank that's meant to um, carry liquid, liquid hydrogen since uh, 2015. So okay, finally, so, they have so, been done some work on it. So, so what, what we'll almost certainly see uh, is a polycyclopropanated uh, <laughs> fuel tank uh, emerging in stealth within Boeing in the next 10 years. <laughs> Something like Without, that. And, they, and they'll just suddenly pr present it. Oh, we've got this new idea. Okay, well, we'll see. We'll see how this uh, comes to fruition because uh, it's. Um... And even though this is a just a research project in a university for now, it is pretty promising in the long term because it doesn't need loads of power on the grid like green hydrogen does. It just needs it just needs vats. Harry, what do you think? What do you think? Yeah, Andrew's is right. It's, it would be vats, and it would be maintaining the conditions needed to produce the um, the fuel at sort of the optimum rate, um, and making sure that the chemical processes are there to obviously interrupt the the nitrogen stage and to convert it back from a, a fatty acid into this ester-based fuel. I think those sort of chemical processes we're used to seeing. Um, we see you seeing in loads of in chemical industries and chemical industries are actually quite efficient. So. That, I think they'd love um, it. I think I think that, that, that industry would love this. So I, I would think that that, um, that that a whole raft of research is going to start joining in uh, with um, what they're doing at Lawrence Livermore. Yeah. So um, do you do you think that this um, would require a new infrastructure, or can this bacteria be, or rather the 
uh, cyclopropane, was it? Um, can this be manufacturing already active chemical plants? I think to some extent, it, it, I mean, in terms of the actual infrastructure, it could probably be adapted for repurposed chemical plants. Um, there are obviously some toxic uh, waste materials involved, so uh, that's something that obviously has to be handled, but that, there's infrastructure surrounding that already in place. They've never knowingly worried about that. Well, yeah, exactly. But we also need to, yeah, they'll also need to look somewhat at the, um, the engines and the aircraft as well. Uh, CP rings uh, combust at a much higher temperature. Well, not a much higher temperature. They combust at a higher temperature than jet fuels. Um, so there need, there'll be needs to be some consideration there. But um, I do very much see this being a solution that ad addresses the uh, aircraft emissions from sort of the top down in terms of larger aircraft. Obviously, I think hydrogen maybe, is being really pushed in sort of the smaller aircraft and up. Maybe just the fuels for missiles, even. Yeah, Which and even know, looking at space exploration in the future as well. Um, I think that's going to be an industry where we start to see decarbonisation approaches really sort of push to market. Because if you can, as soon as we have our first net zero space flight, I think that's when people will suddenly realise that uh, long duration transport using clean fuels will be very possible. Very, uh, and I imagine that's something we'll see in the next five, ten years. Okay. And um, third subject uh, was just a piece that um, I, I wrote that was purely about a letter. Um, the letter pointed out what we'd all suspected for some time came from uh, energy storage suppliers like Fluence, uh, Investors, Gore Street Capital, UK's Gresham House, a, a couple of other energy suppliers, the, um, the Spanish, Irish and German Energy Storage Associations, even the Fraunhofer Institute signed up to it. This letter, which, which um, um, came out and said, why are there no numbers in the um, in the uh, 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 repower EU plan regarding energy storage, if you want to get rid of uh, gas peaker plants, wouldn't you throw a lot of money at energy storage? Wouldn't you specify an amount of spend for energy storage? And instead, um, I read through the uh, repower EU plan again, and it points to the only time it uses the word storage is when it talks about LNG storage. Um, the, the whole whole plan is um, is about replacing uh, natural gas with more natural gas and not getting off natural gas except heading for hydrogen. So it's kind of missed out, and, and Europe seems to be about to miss out dramatically on on energy storage. The only time any um, legislation in the European Commission um, touches it is when. We want to preserve the competitiveness of Europe for making electric vehicles so that there are battery, battery affiliations and some uniquely European companies making batteries in Europe, lithium-ion batteries, but no talk about them being used on the grid to replace gas turbines. Um, I'm not sure that they'll get an answer. It was an open letter. Um, it was, um, but you can't see companies of that size. I mean, the idea in in America, there's a lot of money being spent on it. The uh, official uh, state municipal authorities are mandating lots of energy storage inside their grids. Um, in China, much the same thing is happening. They're mandating energy storage uh, uh, in every uh, large solar installation. In Europe, uh, nothing's happening. And it, it just, um, we, we, we've done the forecast for, the global forecast for battery storage. We try to find uh, serious numbers for Europe. We can find numbers for how much it needs. We can't find anybody 
um, likely to, to and all they're asking for is um, to make battery energy storage be treated evenly on the grid so that entrepreneurs can get behind it and spend a lot of money. Instead, they're spending $29 billion on the grid, uh, euros, on the grid to make it fit for swapping electricity resources um, and they seem to be addressing, thinking that that is the sole method of, um, of uh, uh, storing energy, i.e. move it from Germany to Norway, from Norway to Spain, to Spain back to Germany in the course of a day, rather than actually storing it anywhere. And just as a thought experiment, what actually would happen if you tried to run Europe's grid just with natural gas, uh, eventually replaced with hydrogen, plus Norwegian hydropower that's dispatchable, um, instead of any battery energy storage? You go bankrupt. Well, financially, I don't think I don't think any single solution like that works. I think it's a complex environment. You know, I mean, Spanish solar and Portuguese solar and Italian solar have to be able to export north. So do African countries. So yes, you do need cable, uh, and you do need and you do need it at scale, and you do need it mostly going into uh, northern Italy and Germany. Um, France doesn't need anyone's help. It's got it's got nuclear. It's it's almost into the 1960s now, um, and Norway has so much uh, North Sea gas and wind that it can export energy, and it's setting itself up as a major exporter of energy into maybe the Dutch, the English, and the German grid. So, uh, yeah, that that's that we we had this argument um, all the time. It's not one or the other. You know, if you need local storage resources in Spain, um, because you most of the solar is being used on air conditioning, but you need some then at night to watch television and cook the cook the meal, um, you don't want to send it to Germany and then beg some back from Germany. You want to um, you want to store it locally and use it later. So it's not an either or, and and every situation is different. And uh, but, but it seems that Europe is saying the entrepreneurs will deal with this. They can provide all the money and we don't even need to give them a signal of how much we're going to embrace energy storage because they think that three gigawatts is probably enough capacity for all of Europe when other people are saying, well, the energy storage associations are saying we'll need up to um, 200 gigawatts of energy storage by 2030. So um, <laughs> there's, there's a lack of awareness, but certainly among politicians, there's a lack of understanding, I think. And I think this, this latter was justified. Um, but moving on. Well, Sorry, I was going to say, it just seems a bit like there's, there's this increasing sort of disparity between national approaches. I mean, the UK, I have my, have my head in my hands this week watching the Conservative leader de uh, debates and watching Rishi Sunak promise to... He's looking for energy security by 2045, I think, in the UK, but looking to ban onshore wind again. Um so it's, and I think, but there's the, wow. there this increased... I didn't see that. Yeah, there's, and there's this increased push, again, to, to secure your own energy before um, securing energy elsewhere. But that may, but for a lot of countries, that's going to see them increase their natural gas, increase their coal consumption again. So um, it, it's a very weird reaction to um, the conflicts in Russia, I think. But it's, it, it is very much a head-in-hands moment. Any UK voters out there, wait till the next general election and vote whichever Conservative candidate wins out of office and get a sensible party in there. I don't care who. <laughs> Be it Green, Lib Dem or Labour, but somebody who actually cares about the future. OK, as, um, in fact, we normally have Simon here 
Uh, Simon's not here today, and normally he um, uh, takes a look at one of the um, the worth noting articles, and he usually asks us to explain it. Um, oh yeah, the thing I, I I've noticed the thing I like to bring. I know it's energy storage again, but uh, Moss Landing it, again it seeped out. Um, I think it was Energy Storage News who broke the story uh, at the end of last week um, that Moss Landing is back on. So the largest battery in the world has been switched back on. And it's it's a 400 megawatt capacity. And um, and of course, it's it's not meant to stop there. It's going to go up to 600 megawatt of capacity and something like 6,000 megawatt hours. And that's now being traded on, on CASO, uh, California ISO, once again. But it's been offline for um, since January. Can anyone work out how much money, 400 megawatts of energy storage capacity switched off for six months will cost you. Um, I, I, I'm guessing that, that the capex cost was well over a billion dollars. Um, I assume that um, that's, you know, the interest on a billion dollars for six months is, is not trivial and that the owners of that project, uh, Vistra, must be pretty um, upset. But everyone held their breath, you know, is this a permanent problem? Can we go ahead and finish off our own energy storage um, projects or are they going to suffer the same thermal runaway problem? Oops, no, no, it was an air conditioner bearing, uh, they said. It wasn't thermal runaway, um, just the sprinklers went off in both cases. It just means that you know, the world was looking at, um, at Moss Landing. Um, if you can't make money out of a battery of that size in the California market, where electricity is really expensive, then you know, you can't make money anywhere. And I would have thought everyone's breathed a sigh of relief and the, the whole lithium-ion um, um, battery energy storage system market is is ready to take off again. And it's fortunate that uh, lithium-ion has this EV market to serve as an anchor. Otherwise, it would um, it would be underwater by now, wouldn't it? It would be, uh, it would be replaced by other technologies. Well, it's fortunate it had a 25-year... Uh, improvement through the um, cellular telephone market, mostly at the hands of Nokia and Samsung, because then it, that's what got it chosen as the EV um, a, a battery of choice, um, because there's already been a 25-year run at in improvements. Um, and, and now, you're right, that's what will get it chosen as a battery of choice in, in grid architecture because of the, another 20-year run at EV batteries unless someone uh, does something in the next three to four years. Do you think that the, the penetration of lithium-ion, obviously, in these other markets, so in consumer electronics, provides a bit of a flaw on the price that we're going to see for lithium-ion in the energy sector? Do you think that, obviously, to people developing these, uh, these batteries, do you think they're going to prefer to sell to consumer electronics and that we're going to see lithium-ion stay at that price that they're selling to consumer um, electronics companies at, and we'll see other companies who can't sell to those markets. We'll see those fall below. Alternative? You're talking about alternative chemistries. Alternative chemistries, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we've 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 mapped about fifteen different alternative chemistries, and the companies that are running them. It's not it's not really about the chemistry itself. It's about the price that they can bring that to market and what they can lower it to in the next three or four years. We're caught in this vortex of, of spiralling prices, um, costs of, of, of transport, the, the whole idea of mining things, um, whether it's manganese, cobalt, um, or um, 
or, or, or nickel, um, the all mining costs seem to be going up. Every lithium is is, is needs to be mined at a much higher uh, level anyway. For the next four or five years, the the drag on the the, the uh, EV market, um, price of of lithium ion is not going down. It will go up somewhat and then stabilise. Um, it gives a, a, just one moment in time in history, a four-year period, when if you can get your alternative chemistry below the price of lithium ion or level with it, you can continue to compete with it, not in cars, uh, although there was a piece saying uh, this week uh, that, that sodium uh, uh, iron technology is, uh, may, may also make a comeback, not in cars, but in grid, where, where the amount of uh, land that you use doesn't necessarily uh, make a difference to the overall cost. And in grid, as long as you can um, keep pace with lithium-ion, you'll, you'll carve a space out for yourself. Now, it's, it's the development of these companies. We see people targeting 2028, 2029 for their uh, first uh, two or three gigawatts of, um, uh, of uh, gigawatt hours of battery. It's not good enough. You know, they, 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 the opportunity will have long gone by then. Lithium iron will be back on a declining price curve um, after about 2027. And so we know what the price is now. We know it's going up a bit. That's the, pro that's the price to shoot for. If you can come to market at that price, not now, but over the next two or three years, fall to that price, then the world will pick a different winner. For the grid market. Not, not, I don't think we'll see the end of lithium in that market, we'll just simply see other technologies surviving. And I suppose uh, Europe's delay to grid-scale battery deployment is um, is beneficial then for alternative technologies, it gives them more time. Oh, I mean that delay is, is, is it a six-month delay, is it a one-year delay, is it an 18-month delay? I mean I, I think everybody is, is tied in their zero emissions plans to auction at key points which means these things have to be built out. Uh, I mean, yeah, no more than an 18, 18 months behind it where everybody thought there was. I mean, the, the, once the Russian-Ukraine war is over, then, then the delay is perhaps as long as that war lasts. So only eight years then? <laughs> uh, well, let's hope not. Not for the Ukraine's sake. It's probably, I would guess, two years if, if I had to. It's a bit outside my remit, though. Well, it's just the it's just the story of this uh, build back better policy proposal gradually dying. No, but it's dead. It's definitely dead now. I mean, you said it was it would be dead if it didn't happen by day X. Day X came and went. Um, but you can still do things for the term of a government, and the term of the government's from twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty five, and he can spend a lot of money on his say so on executive um, with executive powers uh, between now and then. But. Um, so uh, it'd just be interesting. Perhaps somebody could look at that next week um, and see what what the um, what the reaction from the U.S. government's going to be under Biden. Although it seems to be that what he's going to do is open up a load of gas fields and oil fields, oil wells, so they can have energy security that they oh yeah they already had. I mean, when Biden visited the uh, the Saudis recently, I I thought the Saudis had promised to increase their production by fifty percent. And then I looked again, and actually they, they're promising to increase production capacity by 50% uh, by 2030 or something. OPEC rule, rules, uh, and America's not part of OPEC. It is, it, is, it's, it's, you know, it is a cartel. That is where you do stand around and say, what's best for us? Not the world. 
Listen, um, all this issue is free on our website. We only write this issue um, so that um, it gives you a good insight into energy this week. Um, and we want you to then buy our research. Uh, you go to www.rethinkresearch.biz, B-I-Z. You click the button that says energy, you click forecast and data, and there is all our research deliverables um, that um, costs $4,600 a year uh, as, for a corporate license. So that's, um, you should go and read the stories. If you're impressed, you should buy the product. Um, and that's me signing off from the Rethink Energy podcast once uh, once again for the week. We'll see you again next week.